of Mormonism again. And again, I'm not going to get too in-depth, but I just want you to get a flavor of how they came about. The Mormonism, the story of Mormonism starts with Joseph Smith Jr. His father, of course, is Joseph Smith Sr. He's born in 1805 in Vermont. He's the fourth of nine children. There were other ones, but they died during childbirth or at some point early in life. By the time he's 12 years old, the Smith family moves to a farm in Palmyra, New York. And it's in New York, really, guys, that he ends up having a lot of his visions. That's really the birth of Mormonism actually happens in New York, which is, I thought, kind of interesting. The, the father, this is Joseph Smith Sr. now, was involved with the occult. He had um, a magic dagger and a seer stone, which he used to try to find treasure. Now, the reason why I want to mention that is because you're going to see later on in Mormonism these occultic practices come forth. This isn't a, the root of Mormonism is occultism. Okay. In fact, Joseph Smith is going to translate the Book of Mormon using a seer stone, and he learns this from his dad. So his dad gets him involved with this occultism at an early age. Um, now, the mother dabbled with it too, but she, at some point, we don't know exactly when, she breaks with this occultism with two of his brothers, and they join a Presbyterian church. Well, in 1820, Joseph Jr., again, this is Joseph Smith who starts Mormonism, claims to have a vision of the Father in Jesus where he is told that all churches are apostate. Okay, So all of us are getting it wrong, but of course he is going to be shown the true way. Okay, And in 1823, Smith claimed to have an angel Moroni. Now, by the way, he changes the name of this. Um, sometimes he used the name Nephi, N-E-P-H-I, and sometimes he uses Moroni. So he's not even consistent with the name of the angel. But he, he claims that it appeared to him, and Moroni claims to be a former inhabitant of America who buried golden plates just prior to his death. These plates contain the history of his people and the true gospel. Okay, Now, Joseph Smith Jr., he claims to have eyewitnesses to these things. What's interesting, and I don't have time to get in. By the way, I'll give you a source. I'm going to type up a sheet this week and get it on the website for all the sources. But there's a guy named um, Van Gordon, and he actually has this documented that these sources that were supposedly eyewitnesses to the angel Moroni, they have conflicting accounts. And I'm not talking about reconcilable. They saw just from a different angle. This is, they're just completely different. Okay, So that's evidence against them. In fact, no archaeological support has ever been found for Mormonism. So these plates contain the history of the people and what they think to be the true gospel. Moroni claims that Smith should translate the reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics on these golden plates using special stones called Urim and Thummimim. So, of course, he's taking that from the Old Testament. The Book of Mormon is the alleged result. Now, again, there is no evidence for this language. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. Now, 1827, Moroni gave Smith permission to dig up the plates along with this Urim and Thummimim and to translate the plates. Martin Harris, this is Smith's neighbor. He brings these writings to Dr. Charles Anthon. This is, guy is a real esteemed linguist and professor at Columbia University. Interestingly enough, Anthon actually looks at these plates, and they're not gold plates, problem number one. But the other problem is, is they're not anything like Egyptian hieroglyphics. He just says it's just a bunch of goobly god made up nonsense, okay? But nonetheless, this is what these people believe, okay? So it's, they're not Egyptian hieroglyphics at all, and we have that from an actual university professor. In 1829, Smith claims to have seen John the Baptist, who conferred the Aaronic priesthood upon him. Later in the year, Oliver Crowdy and Smith were given the Melchizedekian priesthood as well. So that was a good year. He got both the Aaronic. <laughs> he got the, both the Aaronic priesthood. Now, you guys, this is this is a bunch of hooey. Aaronic priesthood ends up being the Levites, right? 
And that was done away with when Christ comes. Now, who is the only one in the order of Melchizedek? Well, Christ is. He is the one without beginning and without end. He is the only one in the order of the priesthood of Melchizedek. So again, this is rank heresy, but again, this is what they believe. 1830, Smith translated the Book of Mormon with the aid of the seer stone. And that's what I want to point out. Again, where is that coming from? Well, it's coming from his father's occultic roots. Okay, so you see the occultism bringing really birth to the Book of Mormon. April 6, 1830, Smith founds the Mormon Church in Fayette, New York. In the year 1844, Smith is actually arrested with him and his brother in uh, Carthage, Illinois. And I don't remember, you guys, I forgot what he was arrested for. But they're in trouble with the law. And a lot of that was, remember back this period of time in America, people cared about heresy. They cared about people's salvation and well-being. So these guys were in trouble. Well, there ends up being a prison riot. People are rushing the prison. The Mormon boys, they had... um, or I should say the Smith brothers, they had guns that were smuggled into them. So they weren't just innocent martyrs. They were shooting it up, okay? But they end up being killed in this gun battle. Well, then Brigham Young takes over in 1844. And by 1847, because of all the outrage in the nation against Mormonism, they end up fleeing. And by 1847, Brigham Young reaches Salt Lake City. Brigham Young is kind of their version of Davy Crockett. He is a frontiersman. He's very well respected. But he's a really bad theologian, as you'll see here. So that's as far as I want to go with the history of Mormonism. I wanted you to mainly see, though, that there was a cultic background in their roots. So let's get into their doctrines. The first problem with their doctrines is really authority. They believe in a continued revelation and an open canon. They have four texts that they believe that are equally inspired. The Bible, the Book of Mormon. Now, to be truth be known, Book of Mormon to them is higher than even the Bible. Doctrine and Covenants and Pearl of Great Price. These are all supposedly, in their own understanding, they all say the same thing. Okay, So they believe in an open canon. Remember, canon means standard. And canon simply is what books do we accept, accept as the authority from God. Okay, We have Genesis to Revelation, and we believe that those are the, the canon. That's the inspired works. Well, they believe in an open canon. This is their own words. From Joseph Fielding Smith, he was their sixth prophet, it says, the canon of Scripture is not full. God has never revealed at any time that he would cease to speak forever to men. Okay? Now, let me show you some Scriptures that they point to, and they're just bizarre. I don't know where they get their... This, these are the Scriptures that supposedly prove an open canon. Okay? They use Psalm 102.27. These are their sources, which says, but you are the same, talking about God, and your years will not come to an end. <laughs> The problem with that is right away that actually they believe that God is not eternal, that he had a beginning. So right away they bring up a passage that refutes their doctrine of God. And how does this prove that the canon is open? Well, what they're trying to claim from this is that because God has spoken in the past and he doesn't change, he'll always speak. That's the reasoning that they're using. Yet, D&C, by the way, is Doctrine and Covenants, Volume 132, endorses polygamy. Well, later, their God does change. Their prophet, Doctrine and Covenants, Declaration 1, voids it. Why? Well, because it became illegal. Okay? So all of a sudden, when it becomes illegal, the prophet of God tells them, this isn't good. <laughs> okay? Pretty fitting, right? So um, anyway, I don't see how this backs up an open canon idea at all, and I think it actually refutes their doctrine of God. Joel 2.28, this is very problematic for them, and actually, again, it's a passage they pick as proof of an open canon. Joel 2.28 says, It will come about... After this, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters will prophesy. What is the problem with this passage for them? Well, daughters, women in the Church of Latter-day Saints, they can't prophesy. They can't minister. They can't be involved. Okay? So in this passage, I just simply point out, well, do your daughters prophesy? Well, of course they can't. Well, in this passage, they do. 
Okay, in other words, no women can get, be involved with prophecy in the Mormon church. But here, Joel 2.28 says that, in fact, daughters will even prophesy. So again, this actually refutes their position. Ephesians 2.20, they try to use this. I'm going to get into this text a little bit later, but it says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. I'm going to show you that having been built is a participle that really devastates their argument. But notice the, what they like about this passage is it mentions apostles and prophets, and they have apostles and prophets. Okay, That's the only reason they choose this passage. The problem is they have it reversed. The Mormon hierarchy goes from prophets to apostles, whereas Paul listed here apostles and prophets. Okay, And Paul lists apostles and prophets in this order also in Ephesians 4.11 because he's not talking about the prophets of the Old Testament, but rather the office of the prophet in the New Testament church. Okay, So he specifically, Paul uses the order apostles and prophets for a particular reason. Okay, And yet they have the order changed. So again, all these passages, my point being, these are the passages they picked to prove an open canon, and they actually refute Mormonism. Okay, so really a bad, weak case. And I'll be proving to you that there is, in fact, a closed canon. But let's get into some of their other doctrines. The doctrines of God. God the Father is an exalted man born from a god and goddess from an unknown planet. Elohim, then, was made flesh through human parents where he earned his godhood by following Mormonism. Okay, so I know, very strange, right? Elohim... Uh, the Mormon Heavenly Father lives with his many wives on a planet near a star called Kalab. I think I'm pronouncing that right. I'm not sure. Through sexual relations with his wives, billions of spirit children are created. Now, by the way, let me just mention this. Elohim is plural in Hebrew. Now, what's interesting is they actually contradict themselves in the teaching of Elohim. Sometimes they usually use Elohim as our, like the God the Father type of idea here. But some of their prophets use Elohim only in the sense of the plurality of gods because they're polytheistic. So they're not even consistent, their own prophets, on how they use Elohim. Okay, So there's another contradiction. So this is the story of how we all came about and everything. A heavenly council was convened to determine where to put these spirit children. Earth was decided on and built. Elohim's two eldest sons, Lucifer and Jesus, so here you see that they're supposed to be spirit brothers, made different proposals to bid for savior of the world. Lucifer's plan was to force people to become gods, while Jesus' plan allowed for free will to follow Mormonism. Okay, pretty convenient. And so that's how you end up being saved and becoming a god yourself. Well, Lucifer, in an angry rage at his lost bid, convinced a third of the spirits destined for earth to fight in a revolt. Those who remained neutral in the battle were cursed with black skin. So this is where their racist doctrines come about. Okay, So everybody who fought in the battle... They get white skin, according to the Mormons, but those who didn't fight were given black skin. So you see here the doctrine, just racism, rampant racism within Mormonism is built into their theology. Very, very sad indeed. Let's get into doctrines about Jesus and the Holy Spirit. This is their own words from one of their prophets, Bruce McConkie. It says, implicit in his spirit birth, talking about Jesus, as the firstborn is the fact that, as with all the spirit children of the Father, he had a beginning. There was a day when he came into, into being as a conscious identity, as a spirit entity, as an organized intelligence. So again, Jesus is not eternal, but rather he had a beginning. Jesus existed forever only in the sense that we all did in the eternal matter. So they believe in an eternal matter. So what's interesting about that, that's the same case that the atheist has. They believe in an eternal created, or a, I shouldn't say created, or they believe in an eternal cosmos, right? Well, what can we use against the atheist? 
the law, uh, the second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy, all energy in a closed system is going from a higher organized state to a lesser organized state. In other words, we can't have an infinite lifespan of a universe, but only a finite supply of usable energy, right? So therefore, we can't have an infinite universe. And therefore, matter is not eternal. So we can use the same arguments we use with atheists to prove that we can't have eternal matter. Do you see what I'm saying? So again, they're falling into the very same logical errors that the atheists are. And we can use that against them. Jesus was the God of the Old Testament, but once he took on human form, he had to earn his godhood just as we all must. Okay, Jesus was the natural child of God the Father and Mary. So they had a sexual relation, um, literally this Elohim and Mary, and then Jesus is the natural byproduct of that. The Holy Spirit was not an agent in any way of conception. Jesus enjoyed marriage to at least three wives. Now, why do they want that? Well, to support their doctrine of polygamy. Okay, so they have to support that somehow. Jesus received his godhood after his resurrection. So again, they believe in resurrection, but they believe in nothing else. Their God is different. Jesus is different. He's not eternal. They believe in many gods. They believe in um, really a polytheistic worldview. Here's the Holy Spirit. By the way, the Holy Ghost and the Holy Spirit are different. So they have two different Holy Spirit. One is the ghost, one is the spirit. The ghost is a man, and the spirit is a divine eminence or like a force that is felt by all Mormons. So he's not a person in any way. And a great passage, by the way, I don't have it here, but Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve uh, the Holy Spirit by which, by whom you've been sealed until the day of redemption. Friends, you can't grieve a force. You can't grieve uh, gravity. You can't grieve electricity, but you sure can the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 5, remember Ananias and Sapphira, they lie to the apostles, and end, they really are lying to who? The Holy Spirit. Well, how can you lie to a force? Okay, so again, these are passages we should use to show them, no, the Holy Spirit is in fact a person. Here's their doctrine of salvation. It's twofold a plan. General salvation, Jesus' atonement happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. By the way, that's why they have no crosses on their temple, okay, because the atonement that Christ provides is in Gethsemane, okay, so it doesn't happen on the cross. And his atonement was only for Adam's sin. This earned all humanity the right to resurrection, some to hell if you're a Mormon. I'm sorry, if you're not a Mormon, if you're an unbeliever, and others to different levels of heaven if you're a Mormon. And then specific salvation, again, Jesus' atonement paid for Adam's sin, so humanity now is free to work for salvation. So what they believe is Jesus' atonement paid for original sin, and now you're on your own. You've got to make your own way. You've got to work for it. Okay, that's what they believe. And uh, baptism would play into this, and I'll show you some of their other works. Um, here's from their own words. Jesus Christ redeemed all from the fall. He, all from the fall. He paid the price. He offered himself as a ransom. He atoned for Adam's sin, leaving us responsible only for our own sins. And this comes from their apostle, Legrand Richards. Okay, so very sad indeed. Um, baptism must be done for salvation and maybe done for the dead. Three levels of heaven. They have celestial, terrestrial, and celestial. The way you get to celestial, celestial is like you're in clover if you get there, okay? And the way you get there is if you have a wedding actually in the Mormon temple. You've got to do that and everything else. You have to be almost perfect by your works, okay? Then you might end up in the celestial kingdom. Hell is not necessarily eternal. In fact, Brigham Young teaches that people may earn their way out. Now, the way here, that's enough of their doctrine. I'll get back to it and I'll show you some more. But what I want to do is, here's how I believe we should uh, witness to them. We should first refute the idea of an open canon because we have to establish the only authority is the Bible. So we have to prove to them that the canon is closed. And I have a way that I, you've all heard of the Roman road when you witness to people. I use what's called the John road. It starts off with passages from John proving that, in fact, only the disciples, the apostles were the writers of Scripture. 
So we have to prove apostolic authority. Only the eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry and his resurrection, I should have put that on there, or their designee were capable of writing scripture. Okay, so for instance, Mark, and we have also, we got Luke. Luke is associated with the apostles, right? He's associated with Paul. We have Mark also associated with the other apostles. So we have the men who write the gospel accounts are actually associated with the other apostles. So everybody who ends up writing scripture in the New Testament is associated with an apostle. Let me go through some passages with you. Starting in John 14, 25 through 26, it says, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. Now notice, friends, Jesus is saying about his disciples, he says, This is while I was living with you. Well, who was he living with at the time? It was the disciples. Okay, it was the men that he chose, the 12. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I said to you. So who is the promise originally to that the Holy Spirit is going to bring remembrance of his teaching? It's to the disciples. It's to those who lived with him, who he abided with. Okay, so again, this is a case, I think, teaching us that, yes, it is the disciples, those who are with him, who are going to have the teaching uh, of the scriptures that they're going to write. John 15:27, and you will testify also because you have what? Been with me from the beginning. Well, who was with him from the beginning? Is it me? I wasn't with him from the beginning. Were any of the Mormons with him from the beginning? No. None of the Mormons were with him from the beginning. Well, who was? Who will testify also? Those that were with him from the beginning. Okay? Uh, John 17:20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe through what? Through their word. So here in this great uh, prayer before he's arrested, Jesus prays first for his disciples, and then when we get to uh, verse 20, he says, I do not ask, again, on behalf of these alone, but for those who also believe through their word. So here again, how are we going to believe? Well, it's through the word of those who were with him from what? From the beginning. Okay, again, the disciples alone are going to be the apostles who write the word of God. Acts chapter 1, listen to what is written here. It says, therefore, it is necessary, Peter's speaking here, it is necessary, by the way, comes from in the Greek day, it's a divine necessity. This means it must happen by the divine plan. It must happen that of the men who have accompanied us all, the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So this is a reference to Matthias because, remember, Judas dies, and so they have to find a replacement. But notice, friends, they have to find somebody that's going to be a witness to what? His resurrection. And this becomes the prerequisite to be an apostle. If you're an apostle, you must be an eyewitness to his resurrection, you must be called, and you must demonstrate the miraculous. Okay? And I'll show you that. You will do signs and wonders, and you have to be with Christ from the beginning. Now, Paul, let's talk about him. He doesn't see the Lord raised from the dead until Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 15, he says he was one untimely born, but yet he saw the resurrection. And so he falls into the same rule. But he was just untimely born. It was just delayed. Okay? But he's personally instructed by Christ, and he's an eyewitness to the resurrection. So he falls within these qualifications. Are any Mormon, whether it be apostles or prophets, or part of their 70 quorum that they call have any of them been an eyewitness to the resurrection? No. Can they be an apostle? No. Let me give you further evidence. Second um, Corinthians 12, uh, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Friends, people used to lay out the injured and the sick in Acts chapter 5 so that the shadow of Peter might fall upon them. When Peter and the apostles are healing, they're batting a thousand. They're not missing. In fact, every time the apostles... When they pray over somebody, 
they're healed. When they put their hands on them, they're healed. They've had a thousand. That doesn't happen today. The apostles and the prophets of the Mormon church don't heal. They don't do the same miracles. They don't raise the dead. Okay? So again, this is uh, evidence that, in fact, they're not apostles. Now, Ephesians 2.20, let me talk about this real quick. Having been built, this is talking about the church, the Gentile church and the Jews, whether Jew or Gentile, where having been built is a past tense participle. And the reason why this is important is because it's a reference to the foundation. It's a foundation of the building. Okay? Now, let's talk about this. How many foundations can you lay? You can only lay one. Okay, you can only lay one foundation. And once that has been laid upon, yes, you can build the rest of the building, but the foundation's already been laid. And so because this aorist participle is used, talking about past tense time, this foundation has already been laid, and therefore that can't be rebuilt again. That can't be laid again. And so the the foundation is made with the apostles and prophets, and Jesus Christ is, in fact, the cornerstone. Now, interestingly enough, later on, the rest of the building, that's you and I, we're being fitted together. This is present tense. Okay, because in other words, the building is it's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But when it came to the foundation, the referent of having been built is this foundation that was done in the past and you can't build another one. So this passage is devastating against the idea that we have apostles and prophets today. Hebrews 2, 3 through 4, How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation after it was at the first spoken through the Lord? It was confirmed to those to us by those who heard. Well, who are those? those who were with Christ from the beginning. God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. Again, these various miracles, the signs and the wonders proved that the disciples, the apostles, were in fact the real deal. Where are the signs and wonders today of the Mormon church? They don't have any. Jude 3, listen to what Jude admonishes. He says, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Once for all. This message isn't going to change. It has been once for all handed down to us. So here's what I recommend we do. Were the Mormon, let's ask the question, were the Mormon apostles with Christ from the beginning? No, they weren't. And therefore, they're a $3 bill. They don't fit the bill, do they? They do not fit the equation for an apostle. And the question also, 2 Corinthians 11, we can't have a different gospel or a different Jesus. In fact, in Galatians 1, 8 through 9, Jesus says, if you, or Paul says, if you preach a different gospel, you're to be anathematized, cursed of hell. And that is going to be our test. Let's put their gospel to the test with the Bible. Okay? So here, let's talk about God. Here's the Mormon God, their idea of gods. It says, the gods organized and formed the heavens and the earth, and they said, let there be light. And the gods called the, the light day, And this comes from the pearl of great price. Again, it's an authoritative source. What does the Bible say? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, they say, in their journal of discourses, the head of the gods called a council of gods, and they became together and concocted a plan to create and populate the world and people it. Nehemiah 9.6 says, You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, you give life to everything and the multitudes of heaven worship you. So it's only one God. They're wrong. The Mormons teach this. They say, we have imagined and supposed that God was God from all eternity. I will refute that idea and take away the veil so that you can see. That was actually the words of Joseph Smith himself. What does the Bible say? 
from Psalm 91 through 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You guys, this is a primary passage I would bring up with the Mormons. Okay, Psalm 90, you want to remember this one. This is one that refutes their idea that God is not eternal. It's a very important one. Next, they say this revealed doctrine of the composition and nature of the Godhead teaches that there are at least three gods. So again, they believe in a plurality of gods. Well, what does the scripture say in the Shema? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay, Uh, how about the atonement? These are their own words again. Joseph Smith taught that there were certain sins so grievous that man may commit that they will place the transgressors beyond the power of the atonement of Christ. What does the Bible say? John 1.7, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. Not just some sin, but all sin. The blood of Christ says we'll never wipe that out. Your own blood must atone for it. So now we have to work for it. We have to provide our own atonement. Right Now, think about this. Paul attributes Romans 10.3 to the Jews. They were trying to make their own righteousness. Friends, that's exactly what the Mormons are doing. Listen to what Paul said about the Jews. And by the way, in verse 2, he says, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So knowledge is important. And these people, friends, they have a zeal for God too, but it's not according to knowledge. Then in verse 3, he says, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. That is the problem with all cults and false religions. They are trying to establish their own. Their own what? Their own righteousness. That's exactly what the Mormons are trying to do, and they can't. The Lord is very clear in his word. Hebrews 9.26, see? He, that's Jesus, has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of who? Himself. It's just himself. He pays for all sin. Mormons, they say the Holy Ghost is a spirit person, a spirit man, a spirit entity. He can be in only one place at one time. The Bible's quite clear that that's not true. Psalm 139, 7 and 8, Where can I go from your spirit, David says? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. What about sin? Let me show you what they believe. Divine justice forbids that we be accounted sinners solely because our parents transgressed. Now, when they're referring to parents, they're referring to Adam and Eve. Okay, they're not talking about their mom and dad. They're talking about Adam and Eve here. Well, what's the truth from the Scriptures? Romans 5.19, Through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. In fact, that's what Romans 5.12 says. It says, When Adam sinned, dot, 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 all sinned, erist. So when Adam sinned, you and I sinned. That's how we're regarded by God. So we are, in fact, made sinners through Adam's sin. So again, they're wrong. It's a swing and a miss. It's a $3 bill. The Mormons say again on salvation, they say among the covenants are these, that they will cease from sin and from all unrighteousness, that they will abstain from the use of intoxicants, from the use of strong drinks, from the use of tobacco. What does the Bible say? He saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. All right, so again, a swing and a miss by the Mormons. They say there is not a man or woman who violates the covenants made with their God that will not be required to pay the debt. What does the Bible say? Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. Okay? It's completely by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now listen to this. The final one I want to leave you with is they say there is no salvation outside the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And what does the Bible say in Romans ten thirteen? Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved, no matter where you are. Okay? So friends... Doctrine after doctrine after doctrine that they hold to is 
doesn't line up with the scriptures and proves that it is, in fact, again, a $3 bill. They are violating Galatians 1, 8 through 9. They are preaching a different gospel, and therefore they have put themselves under eternal condemnation. Okay? So, again, what do we do with these people? We have to pray for them. We have to love them. But we have to, first of all, establish authority that the Bible is the only one, that the canon is closed, and then we have to teach them again about who the true God is. And they, we have a lot more work to do with Mormons. They're wrong on everything. So we've got a lot of work to do. And again, we're going to have to get them out of their community because the Mormon church is going to try to bring them back in. Okay. Now with that, let me open it up to you guys. Apostles and prophets, uh, which prophets were responsible for laying that foundation? I mean, I see, you know, in the, most, all the New Testament books were written by apostles, so I, yeah. I don't see where that comes into play. Yeah, let's um, look at Ephesians 4.11 with me, and I'll show you where Paul is talking about this. When Paul uses the term apostles and prophets, he's typically referring to the offices of apostles and prophets. Let me just show you in Ephesians 4.11. Otherwise, if he uses the term prophets and apostles, then he's thinking of Old Testament prophets and New Testament apostles. In fact, that's why I used to interpret Ephesians 2.20. And I would point you to a guy like Harold Honer. And a lot of the scholars now are realizing, no, apostles and prophets, when it's used in that order, it's always referring to the New Testament. Okay, so for instance, in Ephesians 4:11, this is talking about the gifts that are given to the church. It says, "And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers." So again, here, apostles and prophets is the order in which the the office is given to the New Testament church. Okay, now again, I think that this gift we got to distinguish between the gift of prophecy, which means that we can um, we can utter things that are correct through the scriptures, okay? We can bring correct implications and applications from scriptures. There's a gift of that. But the, the actual gift of the office of prophet, I believe, ceased when the New Testament was, canon was closed because we don't have them anymore. We don't have apostles and prophets today in that sense, that they can give divine revelation. That's done because these things were written by those who were with him from the beginning, okay? What part did the, the prophets play in the foundation yeah, well, I would say when we had the New Testament church, we have them help. Remember, they don't have a canon of Scripture, so they are helping the church. Um, the only canon they have is the Old Testament. And these are people, for instance, we see in Corinthians, they are prophesying. But when they're prophesying, they're always held accountable to what? The Word of God. They can only prophesy one or two at a time. Uh, there's always somebody interpreting what they're doing. Also with tongues. It's very much like tongues. Okay? So it's, yeah. Okay? But yet these are, I believe it's a position that ceases to exist today. Why? Because they're no longer with Christ. I mean, it was only for those who were with him from the beginning. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Does anybody else have any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's the best I can do. I don't know if I could point to, I can't say Paul was a prophet. I can say that he was an apostle, but I can't tell you that Peter, he was both a prophet and apostle. I can't tell you that. We're not given that information. So, yeah, yeah, I wish I could be more helpful. Hey, by the way, Larry, bring up some of your information about Jehovah Witnesses. I thought was really helpful. Quick question. How is it that there are such intelligent, astute individuals like um, Glenn Beck, for instance, yeah. who is such a, an avowed Mormon? How does this happen? I mean, they're sharp people. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't know why they... It's a spiritual thing, you know. It's, it's, it's not always a case of intelligence, is it? You know, yeah. Yep. 
it's sad. We have to pray for them. The evidence is not on their side, and they're believing something despite the evidence. But we see a lot of intelligent people do that. Atheists do that. Hindus, Buddha, yeah, the world is filled with intelligent people who don't, they don't enter in by the narrow way. And that's why salvation can be found by a child. Childlike faith will get you saved. And, but you can be a rocket scientist and go to hell. Yeah, so, yeah, and it's, that's why it's because it's by grace. You know, that passage, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. What is in of ourselves? Well, both the grace and the faith. So that's all from, all from the Lord. Yeah, go ahead. No, uh, you had mentioned about... Uh... Uh, for example, one of those verses uh, in regards to the Jehovah Witness, the one about the Word was a God. Yeah. Uh, they're offering, without realizing that they're offering in the creation of an intermediate state of being. Oh, yeah. Because if it's not the one true God and outside the realm of de- demons and angels and then mankind, what you're suggesting that there is an intermediate state of being. Right. And then that again leads it to polytheism. Right, I agree. Uh, the only comeback that I've ever heard them give is the Psalm 82.6 where you know, God says that the judges were gods. And Jesus picks up on that. He says, well, hey, why won't you call me God after all? And he cites that they will be called gods. And again, that's the comeback that I've had from Jehovah's Witnesses. So again, God, small g, that he's just a representative. Yeah. Well, none of the Jehovah's Witnesses really uh, uh, go by any historical grammatical because some of their scholars, yeah. they can't you know, have support. And I believe I may have been the same guy, Mr. Carlson, that said that they wanted to get the names of the people who uh, did the Greek work so they can, you know, check with them to see if they had credible, you know, credible yeah. uh, background. And, and they said, well, no, we don't give the names out, which right. would suggest something else. Yeah. But also in some of those passages in John, uh, John uh, 8:58, where, you know, they were going to stone him. And that's actually because the Jews were a legalist. Yeah. And uh, later on in that passage, he talks about something in their law. But the point being is that they picked up the stones they wanted to stone him. And how it reads is that. John is writing it rather than the Jews are saying it. He's picking up on what they're saying because he's equating himself with God. Not that they said that, but the way John wrote it. And John knew that they actually got what he was saying. So today, when the Jehovah and Arianist argument read that statement, they're not getting what the Jews got back then. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you're right. The punishment for blasphemy is stoning. And that's what the Jews understood it. They yeah, Leviticus 24, chapter yeah, 24. Yeah, well said. Um, the Mormons have such a divergent theology to yeah. the Bible. So how can they even credit that the Bible is still a recognized? I don't understand I it because it is so way off what is in it. It is. In my appendix, I have a few things that they use. Real quickly, they'll try to take Genesis 1.1. Oftentimes, Elohim is a plural noun for God. And they say, well, that proves that God is, there's a plurality of gods. That's why they like this term Elohim. The problem with it is every time Elohim, every time it's used in reference to Yahweh, every time it's used in the Old Testament, there's always singular nouns that are used. So the point is, is yes, we have this idea of this majesty of this one God. I believe it's a reference to his Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the point is, is it can't be a plurality of many gods because why do we have singular verbs that go with it? You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So that's my comeback to them. For instance, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created that verb bara. It's a singular verb, even though we have Elohim as a plural noun, because there's only one God that's doing the creation. Okay. But again, I think it's a, 
It's an Old Testament reference to the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mike, yeah, you mentioned to me earlier that you said, well, the reference to the fact that it says, let's make man in our image is a reference to the Trinity. And I think you're right. The idea that God says, let us make man in our image. But again, it's actually a singular verb that's being used. Okay, so again, we have this one God, and yet there's this plurality. So the point is, is it fits the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Okay, but also there's this plurality. So it doesn't fit the polytheism, but it fits monotheism with a plurality within the Godhead, exactly as we see revealed in the New Testament and throughout the Bible. We have one God in three persons. That's the only thing that makes sense. You know. I had a question going back yeah. to the, uh, you know, changing the A God and then, you could yeah. even turn to the God. Yeah. That, and that's modalism, essentially. Yeah. So that's essentially what oneness Pentecostals would believe. Exactly. So. They believe that God changes form. So sometimes he's the father, then he puts on his son costume. So the problem with having a definite article there is the word is the God. And so there's no distinction between who the word is and who God is. So in other words, they're the same person. Well, whereas the qualitative translation or interpretation of the predicate nominative, they are equal. They're of the same kind. You and I are equally human, but we're different people. And it's that idea that's conveyed. Yep. At one time, you were thinking about having a third component to the evening, and we'd like to thank you for not trying to put that into this. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. But you might make a comment about how we would get something about Roman Catholicism. Yeah. Oh, by the way, yeah. That thanks, Dick. Yeah. We're, what we're planning on doing is, Mike, does anybody here hear Mike Gendron speak when he gave his Sunday school lecture? He gave a Sunday school lecture where he used uh, PowerPoint and the whole nine yards. He gave the best lecture I've ever heard refuting Roman Catholicism. And what we want to do is, I thought, why reinvent the wheel? This guy does such a good job. He is going to be lecture 13. That's what I talked to Bob. And I'm telling you, if you haven't heard him, it is it just it's awesome. And so what we're going to do is just have that be lecture 13. So then I will have covered, what did I cover? Um, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Jehovah Witnesses, and Mormonism. And then he'll just handle Catholicism. So if you get a chance, pull it up. It will be on the apologetics section. So where you find my slides and stuff under apologetics, he will be there shortly, probably this week at some point. Jesse's going to put it up. And it's really good stuff. Also, his website, do you know what his name of his website is by chance? pro-gospel.org. Okay, good. Yeah, it's, it's got a great website. You just put gender, Mike gender in, you'll probably find it too. So, yeah, really good stuff. Thanks, Dick. Yeah. Well, thanks, you guys. I am. Um, thanks. This has been a really enjoyable 12 weeks for me. Hopefully, we'll be able to do something like this again. But I guess for now, um, let me just pray over you real quick, and then let's let's depart. Heavenly Father, Lord, we uh, we thank you that you have equipped us that you have helped us to contend earnestly for the faith once for all handed down to the saints. And Lord, I lift up my brothers and sisters to you as they go out the door. And I ask, Lord, that you would put the Holy Spirit within them, that you would equip them, and that you would put the gospel upon their lips. And Lord, I ask that you would bring many people their, their way that do not know you, and that you would permeate these people with the Holy Spirit, regenerate their hearts so that they are ready to perceive and receive the gospel when it is in fact preached by my brothers and sisters here tonight. And so, Lord, I ask that you would speak through them, that you would keep them from the evil one. And, Lord, I just ask for blessings upon their witnessing efforts out in the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, you guys.